This is the Bill Kelly Show podcast. You heard the story here on CHML on Friday that uh, two counselors, or two familiar names at least, one counselor, will be running in the provincial election in 2018. Uh, Ted McMeekin has announced that he will be seeking re-election, and uh, running uh, for the provincial election in 2018 is the current ward counselor for Ward 15, Judy Partridge, who is going to throw her proverbial hat in the ring. Judy, good morning. How are you? Good morning, Ted, and thanks so much for inviting me on this morning. I appreciate it. I'm just wondering, so Ward 15, that encompasses Carlisle, uh, and uh, does it also encompass the beautiful uh, enclave of Orkney, Ontario as well or not? So I just to give you a brief explanation, <laughs> my proverbial hat, I love that. Yeah. Uh, so the uh, Ward 15 Flamborough goes from the escarpment in Waterdown, includes Waterdown, goes over to the border with Burlington, uh, and then to the west it goes to Greensville, and then all the way up to the border with Guelph, and that includes sharing a border with Milton as well. So I, I work with those uh, councillors in, in the other municipalities. All right, so let's kind of talk about now. Uh, this obviously is a, the decision that uh, was not made lightly. Kind of take us through the thought process. Um, what made you decide to uh, go from municipal politics to um, run provincially next year? So, Bill, seven years now I've been on council, um, and into next year will be eight years. And over that period of time, I've worked on the planning committee and and a number of other committees. In fact, currently I'm on 26 committees. And, um, you know, you you really get to know not only the broader city, but particularly the other areas. And, you know, we have some very unique needs in the city of Hamilton, but particularly out in the rural areas. And being a councillor that has uh, a ward that's 70% rural, and the rest of it, of course, being watered down and settlement areas, which include Carlisle, which you mentioned before, and Millgrove, um, you know, it, it's very different and very unique needs out here, particularly when you look at the farm community, uh, farmers feed families, and we need to protect our rural way of life. So when I looked at, okay, I've been seven years here, and we're getting a lot of work done. And I, and I will say, I, you know, I must praise my colleagues because, uh, you know, there's a lot of heavy lifting going on around that table. But when I looked at, okay, what's really affecting our communities, it is legislation from the province. We are creatures of the province. Every municipality in the province is. And so, you know, for me to really affect change, it needs to be at the provincial level particularly where there's legislation. And, uh, you know, we have the Green Belt, we have the Clean Water Act, we have so many different legislations that govern what we do in in the rural and the urban areas. And um, so, you know, in some ways, I love what I do. I am very, very passionate about my community and about this city. My relatives came here in the early 1850s and, and settled in Hamilton, um, it wasn't an easy decision, but I think it's a very good and necessary decision, and I'm, I'm quite pleased. Now, I understand that you were um, considering, uh, not well, of course, we should say that you're running as a Liberal candidate uh, next year, but you were also approached by the Conservatives, were you not? Yes, and I consider myself a blue liberal, by the way, because I am very fiscally responsible, and anyone who's watched me on council knows that you know, I, I really focus on uh, the finances, particularly what the costs are and what the impacts are going to be to our taxpayers, but also on, in a progressive way, what are the things that we really need to step out and make happen in our city to make it a better place. 
So the, we should mention, um, if people are, are still not quite sure, because McMeekin, uh, Ted McMeekin, as we said, uh, also announced that he will run. It's a new riding, Hamilton West, Ancaster, Dundas. So from an area standpoint, has that riding that he will run, and has that been kind of uh, uh, brought down a little bit, made smaller, and the area that you'll be representing possibly is bigger area-wise? So the um, the boundaries provincially have been changed to match the federal boundaries, which which were changed by the um, by the federal government in the last election, and so it does encompass Flamborough and Glanbrook, and uh, it is it is a bigger geographic area, but population wise, um, it's not significantly um, broader. And I will tell you. There are so many similarities between Flamborough and Glanbrook, and being on the planning committee, being on council for seven years, I've had the opportunity to work on a lot of the development uh, projects that are currently underway, significant, uh, I'm almost out of control, housing development, Upper Stony Creek, Binbrook area, if you, you know, all throughout Waterdown, and, you know, I, I've been able to participate in those files, so I have a good understanding of what the needs are, particularly within those new housing developments. And as far as the, you know, agriculture and agribusiness goes, and the farms, of course, you know, such a rural area. And uh, and our rural area doesn't know boundaries. You know, all of the farm people, we all work together. And uh, you just see that happening. It's a rural way of life. So, yes, to answer your question, it does change the boundaries. It does uh, give me a bigger area, but one that I'm certainly looking forward to serve. Our guest, uh, I'm Tad Michaels, by the way, and for Bill Kelly. Uh, today on the Bill Kelly Show, our guest is uh, Judy Partridge, who is the uh, Ward 15 councillor, who has announced uh, that she will be running as the Ontario Liberal candidate for the new riding of Flamborough. Glanbrook, Judy, you, you mentioned, uh, uh, and I'm uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but you had mentioned 70% of your riding is rural, correct? That is correct. So how, how do you um, kind of take the rural part of it and take the the other part of it because it is a big area uh there are people that have different concerns and different needs it's not like for example oh i don't know hamilton center or hamilton east where there's no rural part mm-hmm. how do you um alleviate the concerns of rural people versus more um urban people so for the flamborough glanbrook community, there really isn't a division, and I'll explain why. First of all, I grew up in the rural area. I grew up in Greensville. I've worked on farms. You know, that's what we did in our teenage years. We went and picked strawberries, picked cucumbers, and, and worked on all the rural farms. The urban area is watered down, which by and large, many people there consider it, still consider it to be a rural area. It's a growing community, and with all the housing development, it has kind of crossed that line to become more of an urban center. But, you know, like I say, there's there's really a very close similarity there. Um, I'm wondering when you were making the decision to go um, and, uh, as we say, run provincially next year, uh, did you talk to any of your constituents beforehand or or have you talked to them since you've made this announcement official and what was their reaction? Yeah, so definitely, first of all, my family. Um, You know, I I could not do what I do without the... uh, 
unbelievable support of my husband, Jeff. And uh, he has just, you know, been terrific and alongside me. And my two boys as well. They're 29 and, and 25. So they were certainly part of the discussion and, and close friends. And um, the response has been overwhelmingly positive, although I'm getting just a little bit of a pushback that, you know, oh, you're not going to be our counselor anymore. You know, what's going to happen there? So, but in terms of, uh, of uh, you know, making that move to the province, uh, it's, it's not been a negative at all that I've experienced. And I've also talked to a number of people over in Binbrook, uh, in Mount Hope area. And uh, again, lots of encouragement, um, you know, and so it's, it's a very good decision for me, Bill, or <laughs> Ted, sorry. Um, three letters for you, and I know that uh, you're kind of going into this on, on the tail end of it. LRT. I know you've you've made your 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 viewpoint known about this. Mm-hmm. Do you think this will be an issue in the provincial election, which is coming up less than a year from now? Well, I think it will be, but I have to tell you, it, it's it's a council decision. You know, at the end of the day, I voted against LRT. I don't support it. I didn't support it then. I don't support it now. But that's fine. The Liberals have a very big tent, and I can do much more on the inside than I can on the outside. And so that's, you know, something else that's very important to me. But um, it really is a council decision, and I think it's probably going to factor more into being an election issue with the municipal elections, which, of course, are uh, 2018 in October. Um, but I also think there's a lot of other issues that are, that are going to be you know, t- uh, priority. Mental health is one of them. You know, I, I'm working on a project right now with um, some f- local folks and with the school board to try and open up a, a, a wellness hub, if you will, very similar to the one that's at Sir John A. McDonald. We want to do a pilot for one at the Waterdown um, uh, High School. And uh, the, the issues are big, and this is something that we need to start paying attention to. And I think the Liberal government has done a good job at addressing this. They've put a significant amount of money into the, um, the new McMaster downtown health campus. And that was one of the reasons why I supported Council's uh, investment of the $20 million into that facility, because they did say it's going to be a priority to look at the mental health aspects across our city, and that's you know part of the clinic that's that is existing there now today. Now I'm uh, wondering when you uh, talk to people, are you expecting when you start campaigning that people because the big issue it seems not so much LRT, but the big issue has been for the last several months hydro rates, and I know that that's something that really gets people's blood boiling. Uh, have you had any conversations with any of your constituents uh, already about, now that you've made it official, that that is their concern going into the next provincial election? Oh, there's no question. You know, this is the hydro rates, but again, they're coming down, I think as of July 1st, actually, down 25%. Locally, it's 28%. And the one thing, advantage that we do have in the city of Hamilton is we have our own hydroelectric company that the residents, the citizens of the city own, and that's the residents that are in the urban area of Hamilton, and it certainly includes Waterdown. We recently merged with Barrie and Brampton and uh, St. Catharines and Mississauga uh, Hydro to form a new hydroelectric company called Electra. And so that has replaced Hamilton Horizon uh, Utilities. And the 
the priority that um, that we're looking at, that I've been working on for the last four years, is to be able to merge the Hydro One within the boundaries of the municipality of Hamilton into that citizen-owned, resident-owned company. So it will be more of a benefit to our citizens. Our guest is uh, Ward 15 Councillor Judy Partridge. Um, you uh, are still... Um a member of, of Hamilton City Council, kind of uh, uh, take us through for residents that perhaps don't know what's involved now that you've officially uh, announced that you will be running. Um, what's being done as far as helping out people, uh, constituents in Ward 15? And I all know you're also uh, assisting uh, the people in Ward 14 where Councillor Pasuda is uh, still on, on sick leave. So what's the kind of the game plan for the next couple of months that way? Well, it really, just uh, everything carries on as usual. Um, I'm, you know, I like to say this job is almost a 24/7 job, and you have to have the energy to be able to do it, which I do, and that will continue right up until the provincial election. I will attend all my meetings. I will carry out all my duties. I'm on the library board as well. And by the way, we've uh, I, I've been delighted to work on the new library being built at Mount Hope and the Binbrook Library, and I was just delighted to support that. But in terms of carrying on my duties, that doesn't change, Ted. It, it, you know, it's just, uh, it's just going to carry on. And I will tell you that the issues that uh, I deal with and Councillor Pasuda, hopefully coming back soon, deal with in the in the rural communities are very complex and they're very different. And um, you know, that's that's one of the things that I enjoy most working on the zoning, land use issues, green belt issues, any any business that wants to excuse me, to expand, uh, it is very complex, and I will continue to do that. You know, it's interesting. I uh, it wasn't until uh, we started talking because I know we've we've had conversations in the past, but it's yep. been seven years since you were first elected to Hamilton City Council. Where's the time gone, Judy? <laughs> well, I'll tell you, we've been busy, and uh, and you're right. Where has the time gone? I first ran for election in 2006 and came very very close to winning against an incumbent. And you know, basically, I spent the four years from 2006 to 2010, you know. reading the Municipal Act, getting really involved in the legislation. I've been attending community meetings on all the big issues affecting us uh, going back into the late 1990s. And, um, you know, it's a really necessary and important thing to do. Being a city councillor is a complex job. It's not easy. I've heard people say, oh, it's only a part-time job. Well, you know what? Go to a few council meetings. You look at the size of those binders that we get. And some, some weeks... On a Friday afternoon, we get handed 500 pages of reports that we need to read over the weekend, do our research, and be able to get around that table and debate and know what we're talking about on Monday morning. That doesn't change from September through to June. It is a lot of work, and it's work that I just absolutely love to do on behalf of my residents. Ward 15 Councillor Judy Partridge running uh, for the new riding of Glanbrook in the provincial election less than a year from now. Councillor Partridge, uh, congratulations on what you've done. Best of luck in the election, and uh, we'll, we'll see you on the election hustings, I'm sure. Thank you so much, Ted. And I also want to say thank you for all the good work that you do. You, you really do an amazing job personally and professionally, and I, and I thank you for that. All right. Thanks very much, Judy. Take care. You're listening to The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on AM 900 CHML. Posters for some plays that featured as part of the Fringe Festival were defaced over the weekend, and 
On the posters were pieces of paper with verses from the Bible that attacked the play's LGBTQ and feminist messages and themes. And joining us to talk about this, Senior Social Planner with Social Planning and Research Council, Deidre Pike joins us. Deidre, how are you? I haven't had a chance to talk to you in a while. How's the summer? Hey, it's going pretty great. Thanks, Ted. Uh, this is my first official day of holidays, and so far I have a radio interview and uh, <laughs> two student evaluations. But it's great. Happy holidays. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm so, you know, and, and I know you like to garden. I love, I don't, I, I didn't want to take you away from that, but we did That's have exactly to. exactly where I was when I received the text well, from Liz this morning. But yeah. when I saw it was you, I thought, my goodness, why not? Well, thank you. But, you know, I felt like Matthew Green. I saw a quote from Matthew Green about this yesterday, and he said, I just, you know, I why do I have to wake up to this ridiculousness, he said, on Sunday morning. So I'm, you know, just following in his footsteps, waking up to this. Not waking up to it, but because uh, I did see it yesterday. But, you know, responding to this, uh, you know, more than ridiculousness, but really, uh, you know, just offensive. And, um, uh, you know, people are not understanding, I don't think, the impact of these sorts of things on on um, people young and old, uh, LGBTQ people at home who are, um, are closeted and fearful still. And then this kind of thing happens, and it just reminds them, uh, why they are afraid. And before we go any further, Deidre, we do have that uh, clip from uh, Councillor Matthew Green that you talked about. He was mm. what he said. I denounce it. I denounce any of these types of tactics to silence you, to, uh, you know, intimidate you in any way. You know, there's a part of me, Deidre, that wonders if this... <laughs> I mean, anybody that does this is obviously ill-informed, obviously. Um, I, I'm, I'm hoping that this is just maybe somebody that did it without really thinking through the, uh, you know, the if, if they wanted to protest, there's a better way to, to do it. So I'm kind of hoping it's a one-off, but I'm, I'm getting the sense that maybe it's not. No, I think this is the very thing. Uh, no, and... Um... You know, it's, it's more than this isn't somebody that didn't think this through. This is somebody who has access to a printer and, uh, you know, is doing this as a, uh, a tactic of activism. And in fact, in Kincardin this year, they had their very first Pride Festival ever, a parade down the streets of Kincardin. And I say parade, um, you know, but really um, a, a march in defiance of what was happening on their streets, which was some uh, people from some evangelical Christian, uh, and I say evangelical because they identified as that, um, evangelical Christian um, um, denomination that uh, was standing on the streets of Concordan um, yelling these things out loud that uh, homosexuals are you know, defying God and will be going to hell. And because of that, people in Concordan said, no, 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 this isn't what our community is about, and organized um their first ever pride and so here we are uh, in hamilton and you know we have um you know pride events each year and yet uh you know that's clearly not enough and um people are organized and they're organized in, in this sense from a christian point of view and i have been receiving a number of i i have three um calls from june from about one particular um uh, congregation in this community that is spreading uh, very hateful um, information. I mean, their website is connected to uh, Focus on the Family, and um, you know, so there are a number of. Uh, it isn't just Christian, but there are a number of, in this case, um, Christian organizations that I that I fear. Um, I'm very fearful about in this community and the damage that they are doing. 
to uh, to people young and old. Could this be cons- and it, it's this is actually one of the topics we'll be talking about when the chief uh, comes in here for his uh, town hall after ten o'clock. Uh, from your standpoint, is that considered in your mind a hate crime? What? what- uh, yes. Yes, sorry, I just have to pause for a minute yep. because, I mean, I really don't know what the, the chief, you know, I'm sure there's a more technical answer and I might be wrong, but is this an act of hate? Yes. Um, whether it fits the criminal uh, bill, you know, the, the, the hate crime, uh, I'm not positive uh, around that definition, but it is definitely an act of hate. And uh, like you said, the part that people have not thought out is the, um, the impact on lives in this community when these things happen. It isn't, uh, it isn't lighthearted. This, is, this represents, um, you know, centuries of, of hateful, of, you know, death. Uh, you know, uh, LGBT people have been killed by Christians. Um, and uh, we're going so far in so many communities and so many Christian communities, um, uh, and yet uh, this is still happening. So, you know... It- uh, I I would like to think uh, that this is 2017, Dieter, and we have made a lot of progress. And as you say, we have made a lot of progress, but then something like this happens, and it kind of, uh, from from your standpoint and, and the LGBTQ group in Hamilton, how frustrating is this that it's almost two steps forward, at times three steps forward, and now one step back as far as educating people? Um, yes, you know, I think this is the thing about the, the public... What we see, you know, this um, looks like, um, you know, it may seem a lot often um, to people that this is that we're always going forward, and then we have these small things that set us back, and uh, and yet on a day-to-day basis, this um, is still a reality in so many people. You know, so many people are showing up at work today and facing homophobia and transphobia. Uh, thankfully, school is out, and so. You know, the reported 26 times a day that homophobic and transphobic slurs are heard in Canadian high schools, uh, you know, our, our queer and trans kids have a break from that uh, for the summer. And that's, that's a good thing. Uh, but I don't think we, I don't think that, um, I hear just far too often that, uh, uh, you know, things are so much better now because it's this particular year. I never really care what year it is because it still always seems to be 1850 or something, you know. Um, and so that, you know, it's not, I don't always find it helpful to, to remember what year it is, but I think what we do need to remember is that we have to, uh, to be vigilant and that lives are at risk here. Three to eight times higher are the suicide rates of LGBT people. And in this particular case, set out by a Christian faith uh, that is, uh, you know, bound by the love of Jesus Christ, and they are clearly not uh, committed to that mandate, whoever did this. You know, it's interesting, um, I, and I, my eyes kind of uh, got wider when you mentioned, what was that uh, quote again about uh, uh, 26... Uh... 26 times a day. EGAL is the name of a human rights organization. Right. Yep. This is their research from just a couple of years back, a school climate survey and of, of all students, so LGBTQ students and straight students, and on average across Canada in Canadian high schools, homophobic and transphobic slurs are heard 26 times a day. Wow. You know, and then couple that with, you know, and you happen to be, um, you know, a lesbian who's also a person of color. And so you get, you know, get called a, you know, a black dyke or whatever. You know, it just gets doubled and tripled when the intersections of who we are um, are realized as well. How do we uh, educate people about this? Or, or is this, as, as you alluded to, possibly so deep-rooted, maybe generational, that uh, it, it's almost, in this case, 
you can't win the argument. You you can't bother discussing this with somebody if they don't want to uh, have an open mind. I kind of think the opposite. I think that uh, that is the problem, is that we have stayed silent too long. And people say, oh, you know, you can't talk to him because, well, you know what he thinks about, you know, Uncle Ted or whatever, who not, you know, who have... And, and so, um, so they don't carry on conversations. We don't interrupt homophobia. We aren't vigilant in, in when somebody makes a, 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 I mean, all of this is rooted in sexism. So Ted, you know, people are, I always picture, you know, this summer, people standing around barbecues, you know, um, you have an opportunity to educate every one of you as an ally, you know, bring up this conversation, you know, don't just talk about the Blue Jays or, you know, all the tie cats or, um, you know, all the happy or, or maybe not happy sports stories. But talk about really important things and say, do you know what I heard on the radio today? That, you know, here in Hamilton, they put up these signs and they got these uh, uh, these Christian uh, sayings put over top of them. What is going on with that, you know? And have a conversation. Now, do it in a way that isn't what I just maybe did, which is, a, I don't want it to be confrontational. It's, we call our training creating positive space. And so it really means asking, you know, bringing up um, sensitive issues, uh, but doing it in a way that plants seeds so that you can come back and carry on that conversation because you are saving lives. I had a, a grandmother come up to me at the end of a uh, service club meeting recently that I was at and um, asked me if I had a minute because her granddaughter, um, in fact, by the end of our conversation, we were just saying her grandchild, not granddaughter. Um, you know, uh, they're exploring um, what is what is their grandchild's uh, identity around gender. And, um, and had some important questions about that and was going to speak to the family about that. You know, that's a brave, you know, that's a brave grandmother having important conversations. You so know, that's, you, yeah, but, that's, my, that's my thing, you know, over a beer, over the barbecue, um, you know, it's okay. I know it's summer, but just, you know, just stand up for one, for, for this, uh, just stand up for it for once, you know? Yeah. You mentioned the term training. I'm actually curious now um, uh, as to what you do as as far as the quote unquote training programs that that you offer people. Because is it, this, I think, is a key component that maybe people don't know about. It. Tell us about that. Oh, thanks, Ted. Yeah. So um, uh, through uh, initially, uh, this is training that I developed for the Well um, Hamilton's LGBTQ Community Wellness Center. It doesn't exist anymore because of a lack of funding and and resources to support. Um, a volunteer organization. Um, and so that training I now do, I offer it through the Social Planning Council, and I've, I developed it back in 2007 or so, uh, shortly after Ron Matai, uh, you know, was beaten. We had a terrible right. homophobic hate crime. Yeah. And so since then, uh, I've been del- delivering uh, LGBTQ positive space training to thousands of people across the community. The Chief, Chief Gert, um, you know, knows that... Uh, this training was received by um, through block training, and the, all the police, um, you know, now over five or six years ago, received this training. Um, uh, all of Good Shepherd makes it mandatory. Organizations in the city are, are committed to this, and many are just still picking it up. Uh, I was just at the Qantas Boys and Girls Club, and Glenn Harkness has made a commitment that all his staff will receive this. This is training in the basics of, of being able to have conversations, to be allies, and to interrupt uh, homophobia and transphobia, because what I hear most, you know, even from teachers is, you know, what do I say when I hear people say, that's so gay? And, and, uh, and so, you know, how do you just really say, please don't say that, that's offensive, you're using someone's identity as an insult. Um, 
and that's what uh, that's what positive space training is. It's it's exploring the issues of the day around uh, that some of these issues that come up around trans- transphobia that are more prevalent now. And so I encourage uh, every organization. The United Way has made a commitment um, to assessing its own organization. Uh, all its staff are receiving this training in September. So it's a it's you know really being part of a movement to say enough is enough. You know, you uh, you brought up the term teachers. Uh, this is, a, I would say, th- things have progressed a long time from since I was in high school, Deidre, and, it's, or, and, and public school, and it's been such a long time. The most of it has been blocked from my mind because I'm <laughs> of a certain uh, demographic. <laughs> but um, has the curriculum, in your mind, done enough, or are they planning on doing more as far as you say stopping the words that people use uh telling everybody that you know this is the way that you should behave uh talk about from a curriculum standpoint what's being done in the schools i think the curriculum that this government has brought in and stood for which uh you know brings in uh conversations about uh same-sex parenting um you know that some families have two two moms or two dads at the level of grade three. I think that's quite appropriate because kids, kids are in school uh, and, and meeting their friends or, or coming from families of, of two parents, uh, two mom, two dad families. So, so we need to talk about this early enough. So I think the curriculum is there um, in a lot of ways around the introduction of it now. What it doesn't have is, um, you know, I when you and I were in school, they taught us uh, sex ed, and sex ed meant how to have sex between a man and a woman. And uh, they continue to do that. You know, public health uh, uses tools to show people how to put condoms on, but there is no talk about how to have safe sex as a lesbian or how to, um, in, uh, they're now talking a little bit about anal sex. This is helpful because straight couples also have this. I know this is a morning show, but I'm sorry to bring up... Uh, sex so early, but this, we're sex positive. So, I mean, these are some areas that really are lacking for students, and they're serious areas because, um, you know, we now have teenage pregnancies under control, but um, sexual, uh, sexually transmitted diseases are on a rise, and so there are important messages that are being missed. And then around training, teachers have not been um, offered the kind of training uh, because, it, uh, you know, really it becomes an issue of um, replacing, you know, with supply teachers. How do you take teachers out of school and give them this kind of training? And so, well, it's been offered in clusters, and each school has, um, in the public board, I can only speak about the public board around who's been trained, um, and that's sad because I can't say that the Catholic board has had this same opportunity. Um, but there have there is, there is somebody in each high school, for example, there's a cluster of people that have been trained, but not all the teachers, and so there are still... Uh, incidents reported of, of teachers saying things inappropriate or at least not interrupting homophobia when they could. So much, much more needs to be done. And um, and we're following that. And, and the FPRC uh, really wants to work with organizations in this community to uh, to do some assessment around their LGBTQ inclusion. And that's, that's really what the, the training is one component of. And uh, just before we wrap up, the Fringe Festival wraps up on uh, July 30th. And I would... Uh, you know, suggest that there are certain things that, that people can, can go to the Fringe Festival and just to kind of maybe see what's going on, uh, educate themselves, Deidre. Is that uh, kind of what you're thinking here, too, that, that people should do? Oh, I think uh, very strongly. I mean, I, I'm so glad, you know, it's terrible these things happen. Um, and, uh, 
but what I'm going now to this to these couple of plays because I hadn't they hadn't been on my radar now they are and uh, I hope that they're sold out I think they will be and I think that uh, once again um, a negative message in this community I hope will result in in a few steps forward as you said you know um, may this bring us a, a bigger commitment by our allies you know I just wrote in the in the paper this weekend about um, how important it is for an LGBTQ community center to be here in Hamilton so that we can show um, a commitment to inclusion. And, um, and uh, I, right away I had an email from someone who thought that that was a terrible idea and, um, and why, do the, why do we need these special, um, uh, these special things? Well, here's why we need special things, because we need to teach people uh, about LGBTQ inclusion. And thanks for, uh, for offering this time for this conversation this morning, Ted. All right, Deidre Pike from the uh, uh, Hamilton uh, Social uh, Social Planning and Research Council. It's right in front of me. Thank you for that. Uh, <laughs> I, I will now let you go back to your garden. And uh, just a quick little reminder that if you do have some tomatoes that you're planting or something and oh, you want yeah. it and you want to you know, have me test them out, nothing I like better than going to a garden and picking out a... I'm just throwing it out there, Deidre. All righty. Well, I'll have a zucchini loaf <laughs> for you a little bit later. <laughs> <laughs> All right, thanks for that, Deidre. Have a good day. So there you have it. Uh, the uh, the feedback on uh, on those posters um, that were placed as part of the Hamilton Fringe Festival, and um, it will be interesting to see if somebody steps up and said we were the ones responsible for putting those posters up. But I suggest that they probably won't. It's too bad. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show weekdays from nine to noon on AM nine hundred CHML. Every month, we call up the Chief's Town Hall, and he is available to answer any questions that you may have. And we're pleased to be joined by Hamilton Police Chief Eric Gert. We actually get a chance to chat to each other in studio. This is kind of nice. Welcome. All right. So let's um, let's start off, first of all, by talking about some of the um, the issues involving uh, what's been happening here in the city. And we had talked about, uh, with, with Deidre Pike, last half hour about the incident uh, that uh, was put uh, some of the posters that were placed on the polls uh, in downtown Hamilton. I know there's a lot that can't be said because it's still under investigation, but what can you tell us about that? Yeah, so we're investigating that as we would any uh, particular complaint about that. I think Deirdre's Pike uh, was, uh, and she kind of tried to spin a positive on it, was the awareness that is happening as a result of the actions of these people. And what it's uh, done is, uh, you know, increase interest in what is going on with the festival and the number of events and the plays. And when she talked about awareness, and as you know, she mentioned on, uh, on her call to you that she's done training in our service for about five years now. And really it's about having those conversations, about stepping in when you have homophobic con- comments or comments against trans, uh, any of the LGBTQ members. And uh, so you know, sometimes you can see positives of these things, but... Uh, often in, in terms of opinions and beliefs, and we've had these interactions with the human rights commissions where you may have competing interests where uh, you have a religious belief on the one hand and you have uh, a different belief in terms of prohibited grounds on the other. And uh, the human rights struggles with these issues where there's different beliefs and different systems. It's not so much the beliefs that is the tension, it's when you have actions. And when you have criminal acts, of course, we get involved. Uh, so it's not so much what your belief system is, it's what actions do you take and are you, uh, you know, committing a crime by doing so. By the way, the number to call if you have a question about uh, something that's concerning you is 905-645-3221. Dieter mentioned about uh, getting some emails and some uh, some correspondence from uh, a particular website. From a, a, a legal standpoint, what can be done about 
I don't want to use the term shutting down a website, but if there's something that is pretty bad, pretty venomous, what can be done from a policing standpoint? Yeah, and it depends on the nature of the comments. We deal that uh, on a on a you know daily basis, so to speak, with regard to uh, it could be harassing. Um, you know, threats. It could be a whole range of things. So we'll normally deal with the service provider, and they have, uh, when they're usually regulated, have some sense of responsibility around those things. But if it's actually uh, raises to the level of hate crime or genocide or uh, propaganda around genocide, then that's a different, uh, you know, different approach to what can be done and of course we need the attorney general's consent often when we get into those kind of issues story that came out earlier today uh, on chml news a number of cannabis related offenses down again last year for the fifth time in a row stats can said there were 50 of course this is national 55,000 offenses related uh, uh, to marijuana reported to police in 2016 6,000 fewer than reported the year before uh, but despite that, the percentage of Canadians who consume the drug has gone up over time. Now, the Liberal government, of course, has uh, put the legislation in. Uh, looking down the road, uh, how problematic is this going to be for police to enforce marijuana laws, deal with the new marijuana laws? Because this, uh, in my opinion, I still think this is not necessarily a gray area, but there's still some some question marks being raised. And I think this is really what the Liberal government's faced with, is making sure the legislation is clear, that the public understands what they can and can't do. Of course, if you're still trafficking in narcotics and a variety of other drugs, uh, that is still prohibited. What they're really looking at is what we call simple possession, uh, usually under the Controlled Drugs and Substances Act 4.1. Uh, but uh, this is just marijuana. This does not include opioids. This does not include Oxycontin, all the other drugs that are out there. Um, so it is, the, or the government's going to have to be clear on what the legislation actually is, what the enforcement provisions are. You've got the mix of medical marijuana and when it's legally used, how much can you possess, how much can you actually uh, grow. And they, it's time really for them to integrate all those uh, acts so that they're congruent. And to your point, people understand what they can and can't do. My concern as a police chief is, uh, regardless, uh, you got to look at the health impact, particularly at our youth. And I know they're into debates right now about what the legal age will be in each province. Usually they're looking at the, um, you know, for us it'd probably be around 19. Some other provinces might be 18. Uh, but the point is, whether it's tobacco, alcohol, or marijuana, you've got to look at the negative impacts health-wise, and we know of those in all three cases. Uh, so it, it is complex. What we don't want, and what happened in Colorado and out west, uh, certainly in the States, is not looking after the marketing, so to speak, that was happening with regard to uh, THC content going into other things like gummy bears. It's being marketed to kids. Uh, the assertion I heard Bill Blair speak was, uh, you know, if if the government is not supplying it, he, you know, likened it to prohibition, whether it's gambling or alcohol. Uh, their idea was uh, control it through that, uh, ensure the purity uh, so that people know what they're getting, undercut, so to speak, those in organized crime who are profiting. My concern is that organized crime will continue to be in the business. So I'm not sure that they're going to solve that problem. I'm... Uh... <laughs> Maybe I'm naive, probably, but you just mentioned something, and my eyes just rolled up. When you mentioned THC being placed in gummy bears and sold to kids, yep. I that that one surprises me because I think of gummy bears. I go and I pick them up, and my wife loves them, uh, and no problem. But that that kind of 
concerns me a little bit. Well, it doesn't. It's not a. It's not a, a new strategy, as you know. When they were marketing LSD, they'd use uh, you know known figures like uh, Superman or Mickey Mouse. I don't know what the current uh, cartoon figures are, uh, whether it's the new Power Rangers or whoever. Um, so there's concerns about that, and kids think, well, no, if it's got that, it must be kind of the seal approval. So uh, there's a similar approach, so to speak, with the marketing. And those who are generating money. I mean, when you look at the tensions, it's uh, are they interested in money? Or are they interested in the health of our, our kids and our adults? Mm, you know, we really got to weigh that out. So they've got a difficult challenge here to do so in a way that's responsible, that does safeguards the interests of children, and that, uh, you know, also targets things. It's like the opioid crisis. And when we're talking about harm reduction, we don't want to see people dying as a result of addictions. At the same time, we don't want criminals profiting by distributing drugs that are deadly. And we know that they're mixing it with higher higher potency chemicals. This is a huge concern for us from an enforcement standpoint. uh, We believe that we still need to target those who are uh, dealing in the the drugs. Uh, 905-645-3221. If you want to uh, ask a question of Hamilton Police Chief uh, Eric Gert, as this is the Chief's monthly town hall here on AM 900 CHML. One of the things that we, uh, I think, should should talk about, and we'll be delving in this issue more next hour as we uh, talk to uh, one of our our music uh, experts, PR person, former manager, what have you, is a whole issue of uh, the story that came out last week that the uh, singer for Lincoln Park died by suicide. By the way, I'm really hoping that the media gets uh, starts using the proper terms, uh, died from suicide as opposed to committed suicide. That's that's me getting off on my my tangent a little bit here, but but that's something I know that from your standpoint is is near and dear and something that Hamilton Police is working on to kind of. Well, break the stigma, yes, but also to uh, kind of help people up with that. Definitely, and it's all about awareness. And, uh, you know, one of the things I cite, uh, I realize we've got musicians who are, you know, very successful, and people think, well, how can they have any difficulties? And then we've seen the speakers coming out through, you know, Bell Let's Talk, like Clara Hughes, uh, like Silken Lauman, Michael Landsberg, I believe it is, um, very successful in their professions. And, you know, we had a training on uh, anxiety and depression uh, and the, from a clinical psychologist. And his point was, um, when he was, you know, uh, we're doing training in-house for hostage barricade persons, he says, well, you know, people can't will themselves out of this. It requires medical intervention. It requires medication. So take somebody like a Clara Hughes, and if you make the argument, well, you know what, you just need to be focused and disciplined in order to get yourself out of this depression. So I picture Clara Hughes, who I don't know if anybody on your readers or your uh, listeners have uh, ridden up Sydney M Road. I did it once. Mm-hmm. Uh, she does it five times in her training circuit. She's a two-time Olympian. I'm thinking probably she has discipline, probably she has focus. I don't think that's the issue. So when you get high-profile people like this who are very accomplished in their specific areas, and again with Lyndon Park, he was as well, the, uh, you know, the front man, lead singer, um, it raises awareness that, boy, you know, it's, it's a little more complex. And it may just require medication and requires some compassion and some insight. One of the uh, nice things uh, as I do research on this job was last year uh, being uh, given the opportunity to do a ride along with your your officers and the mental health worker from from St. Joe's it was a, a fascinating look at 
what's involved when you get a crisis call from somebody who is says i you know i think i want to you know die from suicide mm-hmm. or, or what have you uh for people that are that perhaps don't know about that take us through that 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 whole program because from what i understand hamilton is kind of the template and there's now other police jurisdictions that are looking at you thinking you know what we should uh, not necessarily copy that but certainly uh borrow it yeah, so our person in crisis unit, which is under community mobilization, is actually a three-part strategy. And uh, the latest acquisition, so to speak, is our mobile crisis rapid response team. So that will be an officer in uniform with a mental health worker responding to the call that's life-threatening either to the persons themselves, where they have suicidal ideation or are acting out, or to somebody else. And really our whole intent is we want to de-escalate, get the person to care, not take them in necessarily uh, to ER if if we don't have to, because then they sit there with two officers, there's the potential stigma. Uh, We've gone from an apprehension rate before we introduced this program by our front line of around 74%, where the officers would take them in, see a clinical psychiatrist, and then they'd make an assessment. We're down to about 11% now. So keep in mind, these are life-threatening calls. So that's been a positive in many ways for the client, uh, for the hospitals, for us. And then the other two-part system is we've both got COAST, which is in our 20th year now, born of, of course, a tragedy, which was the stabbing death of Zachary Antidormi. And, uh, of course, Lori Antidormi, his mother, still works with us in terms of awareness of this. She spoke most recently at the St. Joe's Conference. And then the last part is our social navigator program. And that's really where you have addictions, mental health, homelessness, and poverty. We don't want to necessarily, uh, you know, give people tickets. We're trying to look at alternate resolutions. So it really is a three-part strategy. You've got the social navigator, kind of low end in terms of threat, but high needs in terms of the people. Uh, in Coast, it's a follow-up by an officer who's in plain clothes with a, a, a nurse. And then, of course, our life-threatening situations, which are mobile crisis rapid response team. Speaking of tickets, this may lead us into our next caller at 905-645-3221. Mike has a question for Hamilton Police Chief Eric Gert. Mike, good morning. How are you? Very good. How are you guys doing today? Good. Go ahead. You have a question for the chief? Yes, I do. Um, I've talked to the police before, and I've also talked to the city of Hamilton about, like, we have guys that race up and down our street all the time. The unfortunate part is a couple of them actually live on our street. And the neighbors on the street have actually gone to the city and got these signs that you can put up in your on your lawn to say, slow down, there's a safety hazard, kids are playing, stuff like that. Now we're finding those certain people are now slowing down and are getting to those signs and actually speeding the car up as they go through that area. Now we also had our street knocked down to a 40 kilometer an hour and I asked the city about doing traffic calming, and they said, oh, well, if we traffic calm your street, we have to traffic calm the next two streets over. And uh, to me, this is about the children on the street, not so much about what they have to do to get this working right. But I just, I don't know what to do. Yeah, it's a recurrent theme across the, the city. And by racing, I'm assuming you mean speeding as opposed to two cars lining up and actually racing. Would that be correct? No, yes, you're correct. Yeah, they're, they're speeding, but I mean, sometimes okay. there's two of them together and one's right behind the other. But yep. they're, no, I mean, but it's increased speed, like it's 40, and I guarantee you they're hitting over 80 kilometers an hour. Yeah, and as you know, uh, we'll work through in the division, and most of our complaints obviously are, are traffic related complaints, whether it's stop signs, speeding, um, 
well, almost to the point of careless driving. If you're distracted driving, depends what you're doing. If you're having a burger on your cell phone and steering with your knees, that <laughs> probably raises the level of careless. If you've got the cell phone in your hand, which I, you know, I still see as well, um, it really makes you wonder uh, the awareness piece. To your point about the neighborhood, and if you know, we also have a aggressive driving hotline that you can phone in, and we will phone the person based on the license plate. We don't normally uh, issue a ticket, but of course, that all enters into um, you know our records in terms of what happens. So much like uh, for impaired driving, for example, we have a program where we determine where the person had their last drink, and then we'll make a call to the bar to say. Uh, we've had, say, four or five impaired driving arrests originating out of your bar. What that does is put them on notice because, as you know, often those people can sue uh, the bar uh, if there is a disaster after the fact. Of course, they're smart, serve, trained, and all those other things. But we're just yes. making sure they're following the rules. Similarly here, where you get the license plate and we can do follow-up, A, it shows that people are paying attention, and then we, we can work often through the beat crime manager to have uh, somebody to go with LIDAR, which is laser uh, enforcement. We also have radar as well and mm-hmm. can do that. Those signs through the city that will post the, you know, the speed, I find those quite effective. Coming down Green Street Hill, for example, you see people actually slow down. I don't know if it's a question of the thing, oh boy, I'm being observed. I don't really care how they slow down. As long as they slow down, I think that would be a mutual interest that you have, correct? Yes, it is. It's, it's. I mean, there's at least a dozen families on our street that we all have young kids, like you know, really young kids. And I just, I'm just waiting for something severe to happen. And it's scary because I see these kids running on the street all the time, and I see these guys speeding all the time. Oh. So it just it, it put the two of them. Together. All right. Mike, we're, uh, we're going to say uh, thank you for your call because we're losing you on the cell. Oh, Frank, okay, Frank, go <laughs> ahead. Sorry, I wasn't sure what I did. You have a question for the chief. Oh, it, it, maybe it was me. I was, paid, I was playing the Bobby Foley for an original song. Of Rock See? <laughs> See? I'm glad you agree with me on this one. I'm glad you agree. Yeah, I agree with you too, Ted. Uh, go ahead. Uh, all right, so we're all in agreement here. But let's, yep. agree, on, let's agree on this, uh, Chief. Good to have you on, and it's, it's uh, good to talk to you directly. Um as they call it, uh, rolling stops at a stop sign. When are you going to put a blitz on this? It's happening all over the place. In my community where I live, matter of fact, I was walking along the side of the street when there was construction. Someone turned the corner, and she was looking at my dog, but the mirror in her in her uh, vehicle hit me, and she was smiling at my dog, and she didn't realize that, that, that she snubbed my shoulder with her mirror by sliding around the corner without letting me know that she was not going to stop. I like that one. Well, I don't, and I'm sure you didn't either, depending on the level of impact. But, yeah, uh, it does say stop. It doesn't say rolling stop. It's it's not a yield sign. It does mean stop. Come to a complete stop. It means your wheels stop turning. And, uh, yeah, we do enforce for that as well as speeding, as well as uh, distracted driving. There's a whole range of things. Um, but we're just talking about uh, some of the, um, you know, turns when you have either pedestrians close by or they're walking in the crosswalk. And the whole premise, from my point of view, it's common sense. Uh, it's not necessarily regulated, but, you know, you're in a vehicle, they're walking, they're far more vulnerable. Let them complete whatever they're doing, and then you can make your turn or do whatever you have to do. Everybody's in such a hurry that you're going to make up two seconds, I guess. Uh, but the whole point is, if you're distracted watching somebody's dog, then you're not properly in control of your vehicle. Well, you know, Chief, I, I, I know, 
I have and many people have. I drive down the street at nighttime when there's nobody there, and I stop at that. At that, if that's what I was taught when I got my driver's license, right. to stop regardless of who's there or whatever it's, whatever the conditions are, the, the sign says stop. Now, can I ask you this? What is the fine for not stopping at a stop sign? Uh, I don't have the set fines in front of me right now. I haven't issued for one of those for a little while. I believe it's around the $250 mark, and there's usually a victim uh, surcharge. Uh, but it does involve points as well when you fail to stop at a at a stop sign. What do you think of this, Chief? I think sometimes there should be a, an outward awareness put on these signs, that particularly the ones that have the, the grid down the bottom to try to yep. bring it to everybody's attention. Yep. I would like to see it sometime. Failure to stop at this stop sign will cost you $250. I think that might ring somebody's bell, and maybe even demerit points, too. Uh, don't you think that sometimes we have to maybe do this thing for, to show to people what the um, consequences of, of doing this is uh, going to amount to them in their wallets? Yeah, there's kind of two things, and this is less of ours than it is traffic, and I'm I'm just being brief that it's $110, uh, so I'm a little out of date there. I'm probably thinking wow. of some of the higher speeding fines, but in any event, it is $110 and three points. Uh, but to your point, they have what they're called tiger tails. When they normally erect a new stop sign, they'll do that for awareness. Relative they don't seem to do all that much at, but our, where I see them. Right. Well, they only leave them up for a short time, usually when it's new, because we've had conversations with city traffic around that as well. Sometimes they'll put them out for a short span if they come out and, uh, you know, either we do uh, the monitoring of the intersection or they do the monitoring of the intersection, uh, they can post them. But relative to kind of lengthy writing on signs, it tends to distract people more than that's why they've gone with symbols. So, What would you say, can I ask you this, what yeah. would you say or do you know what they most... Uh, violated areas are. Did you have any take on, on that as to where people find that stop signs are being um, rolled over rather than stopped at uh, repetitively more than anywhere else might be? Yeah, any I, idea what that would be? Because I think that would be a good point to start putting some of your offers there and start sending the message. Yeah, we're, we take a slightly different atta- uh, uh, approach on this. We look at the top 20 intersections for motor vehicle collisions. And actually, the top intersection is King and Red Hill Parkway, 27. This is just for um, this year. Uh, Dundurn and King, uh, Lincoln, uh, Alexander Parkway, and Upper James. And, of course, that's based on volume, too. Stone Church Road and Upper, it goes on. So we track the top 20 intersections for collisions because, of course, that's where you can have injury. Relative to the number of stop sign intersections, you would actually have to monitor, and there's literally thousands of them, um, so either through somebody watching all those intersections or some kind of traffic equipment that monitors that. So we don't have that statistic, but we do, obviously, for uh, collisions. Well, I just feel as though that there should be a blitz put on to send the message because I think that the message could get around and, and it could lessen the amount of people that are doing that, uh, more so than I've ever seen in my time. Thank you for your, your, your moment here, sir. You're welcome. Thank you. All right. Thanks very much. There you have it, uh, Frank uh, calling in. Uh, we do have an email at uh, ted at 900chml.com. Uh, le- it seems to be the common thread here. Tony is up next on uh, CHML, the Bill Kelly Show. Tony, have a question for the police chief about crosswalk rules? Yes. This uh, thing about uh, with the city bylaw where they say you're supposed to wait until they get all the way across the street or something in that line. Uh, the question is, when you have boulevards in the middle, like King, uh, like James Street and uh, Fennel and, and the Gage and so on and so forth up here in the hill, uh, if a person is crossing towards you, I can see where you, if they're on the far side of the street in uh, in that lane, 
you can possibly make a right-hand turn in front of them. But if they're in your uh, your side, you you have to uh, you should wait and let them go and then go behind them. But on the other way around, if they're going across from you, once they're out of your right, can you make a turn behind them? Uh, you're right on all counts, Tony. And actually, there's a misconception. What they're talking about is the uh, time span for pedestrian cross totally over is at the pedestrian crossovers. They are different than uh, the regular intersections with the crosswalk at a four-way, uh, you know, uh, intersection. As you described it, if they're on the far side, yes, you can turn right ahead. I guess common sense prevails here, too, because theoretically you could pass within six or eight inches, and some people do. Of course, if I'm the pedestrian, I'm going to be startled. So you want to do it safely. Use some, you know, common sense. And I was just talking to Ted earlier. Uh, be aware as well, when you make that turn, you kind of obscure the pedestrian from the car behind you if they're going to be turning, right? Yes. So you want to take that into account when you kind of leave them space. And also, if there's kids crossing, you know, uh, depending on their age, but they could even be with their parents, you know, you never know what they're going to do, and they may bolt for some reason. It's always just, uh, you know, for the five seconds it's going to take you to wait. My view is, particularly where they're unpredictable, uh, you wait in your description where they're at the far side and you get clear turn you can do that and once they've continued across the road and then you're turning behind them it's the same thing the other thing and i mean this isn't you know this isn't policing but this is just uh, traffic safety is checking your intersections multiple times you know some people only check left and right once you've got to reassess all the time because things can change very quickly uh, whether it's somebody running and they come out into the pedestrian crosswalk so you're right in terms of pedestrian crossovers versus crosswalks, and the big thing is doing it safely. Well, yeah, it uh, it, it just seems that uh, sometimes there, if you're going to wait all the way along, you lose the light. You mm-hmm. know, it takes so long. Sometimes, like you only have 15 seconds for a walk across the street, and I know the one on Upper Gauge, uh, it's been lengthened because uh, it's a, a senior complex area. Are you talking Upper Gauge and Mohawk? Yeah, no Upper Gauge. Uh, Yep, Upper Gauge of Mohawk. Yeah, Upper Gauge of Mohawk. They've extended that when you can't make right-hand turns on red lights and so on and so forth because of uh, because of the seniors that are in there. I know it takes you a while to get across that street. It's a good wide street. Yeah, and that was really as a result of uh, safety issues that were raised both by the local councillor and by the number of collisions that were happening there. Well, we it, lost a few people in there, too. Exactly, and, and so for the sake of a prohibited right turn now, and we had some questions about that, Uh, My force of habit is I look at the traffic signal and I always look to the left and right of that signal because it'll tell you whether you can turn right on the red or not. It's just a good way to check to make sure that you're following, you know, the other controlling signs at that intersection. And there's good reason why Mohawk engages the way it is. Yeah, well, there there was a lot of uh, people that are not familiar with that. And, uh, like, I go through there a few times. It took me a while to get the... Uh, the rules and regulations going on around there, going through the the lights. And, uh, like, uh, a lot of people go in, they don't see that. They say, oh, it's a red light, I can make a right-hand turn. And they don't realize that uh, it, it's forbidden because of the senior complexes. Yeah, and, and again, that's a matter of being attentive to what the traffic control signs are at the intersection. That's mm-hmm. why I say when I look at the signal light, I always kind of look to the left and right, because usually to the right of the sign, and it says, you know, can't turn right on red. Okay. And then one of our other complaints was uh, somebody stopped there, somebody laying on the horn behind them. Yep. Well, 
you can't make the prohibited turn just because the person behind you is not aware that you can't turn on right All or right. right on the red. Okay, yeah. Tony. All right, thank you very much. Thank, yeah. thank, thank you, you for Tony. your call. And uh, by the way, do, Tony is gone. We have a line open if you want to uh, have a question for the chief. In the remaining moments, 905-645-3221. Uh, this is the email that uh, came in. Good morning, chief. Sometimes when I'm turning right at a no right on red intersection and waiting for the light to turn green, ignorant and impatient drivers behind me honk, not realizing there is a no right on red sign. How should I react in that situation? Sick of dealing with stupid, impatient, uninformed drivers. Phil is the man who sent in the email. And I guess Phil is really laying it out there, uh, which is good because that's how we feel. Uh, what we're also cognizant of, you don't want to get into a road rage incident where people start getting out of their cars, uh, having it out on the street because they think the person behind them is, as Phil has described. Um, so you know what the laws are. And if you feel threatened in your car, too, because somebody's coming up pounding on your door, uh, you know, stay in your vehicle. You don't need to get out and have a big dispute about, oh, by the way, there's a prohibited turn there. You can't do that. Um, you know, stay the course. Uh, I've seen it too. And I've been in my own personal vehicle and people are laying on the horn and you're like, have a look at the sign. Cause, uh, I'm not making the prohibited turn. And usually if you look at where those turns are prohibited, it's usually where vision is obscured either by buildings or the line of sight, or as in the case of upper gauge in Moloch, because of a number of pedestrian injuries or fatalities that have happened there. So it's usually a good reason. They don't, uh, the city traffic doesn't tend to inhibit your, your traffic flow if they don't have to. But when they do, it's usually for good reason. So again, it's being aware of your surroundings, having a look at the light, and you got to stay the course in spite of, as Phil's described, those people. Now, I'm going to get on, on my tangent because one of the things that I don't like is, and there's been a lot of talk about driving on the link and the Red Hill, yep. and I get there's been a lot of uh, fatals and a lot of accidents and what have you. The speed limit on the link and the Red Hill is 90K. 90K, that's correct. If, if traffic is going at 95K, I've, I've heard rule of thumb is that you try to stay within the, the flow of traffic. So if, if, if I'm doing 90 and the person behind me is laying on the horn because he wants to do 100 when it's not 100, should I be staying with the flow of traffic there, or should I, as I sometimes want to do because I'm, I'm feeling in a different mood, I just <laughs> point at the sign as I drive by saying that sign says 90. Uh, what's the situation there? What should be done? Well, my view, and, you know, we face these things whether you're driving here in the States or otherwise. And uh, for me, and I just got a, a lengthy email from a citizen talking about, you know, the obligation to be in the right-hand lane unless you're passing. Well, actually, uh, that is not in the act anymore, but uh -huh. it's certainly a good rule of thumb, and it makes sense because you want traffic to flow. For often, what you'll see, and we did quite a bit of enforcement there, you pull to the right, person lays in the accelerator, and one of the most rewarding things for citizens is when we are up ahead, have just pulled them over, and you're thinking, boy, that really saved you a lot of time, didn't it? Because now you're over getting a ticket, and you're going to be that much later for whatever it is you were in a big hurry for. So, uh, you know, where we can, we will. Uh, as you know, I am a, a fan of photo radar. I think it does change driving behavior. I realize that, uh, you know, the government is going to have to take a position on that. They are mending it for community safety in some jurisdictions. Uh, but I, you know, I've driven down in uh, New Brunswick where it's in place and you see the change in the behavior. I remember when it was implemented here, uh, driving on the 400 series highways and people were driving within the speed limit. It was incredible. But, but the safety that you felt because you weren't dealing with what you described, Ted, 
uh, it was worth it in my opinion. Now, the alternate is, oh, it's just big atta- uh, money grab. And because I pay taxes uh, is the theory, I'm allowed to speed. Well, I don't, I don't buy that. So, uh, you know, to change that behavior inside this for enforcement, one of those mechanisms for, for enforcement is photo radar. You know, we uh, talk about photo radar, uh, then there's radar itself. And um, I know that there is one particular area near this radio station where I draw. I don't I should probably not mention where it is, and I don't think I will. But it is near this radio station. It is a major access, and I know that... Would it be by King and Dundurn? Uh, okay. <laughs> yeah, all right. So you're driving down King. You go over the uh, you go over the highway. The Basilica is there to your right, and then you make that right, right-hand turn, which you have to go near King and, uh, and kind of a Longwoodish. Anyway, probably on a Monday to Friday, there's at least two times a week where the police are nicely situated. Uh, picking people off. So so I can tell you that um, it it does, when I hear people say that traffic isn't being enforced, I know you can't be everywhere, but I'm still appalled at the number of people who speed up there and then realize, oh, it's too late. So the enforcement is being done, and I take great pleasure in somebody that speeds by me, as you say, and gets <laughs> pulled over by the friendly police to say, let's have a conversation. That's right. And actually, in Division One, King and Dundurn is still the leading intersection for collisions. It was in June 2017. Uh, so we do continue to enforce that relative to the earlier callers, earlier callers comment. Um, so I'm glad to hear that they're out doing it. So I'm okay to name the intersection. All right. And as a preventative method, if uh, people know we're out there doing that and they, you know, slow down, you know, that's a complex intersection just like it is for Main and Dundurn. And when you're coming off the highway, the 400 series, you've got Main Street West. People are switching lanes all over the place. Uh, if you're speeding through that, you got to be crazy because there's like six, seven lanes of traffic all sorting themselves out. And uh, you've got a stoplight there as well. It's just bad, bad idea to do that. Let's take our next call at 905-645-3221. Tony, you have a question uh, for Hamilton yes, Police Chief. Go ahead, Tony. Thank you. Um, I believe in Georgia or one of the st- states, if you're con- convicted of drunk driving or and after you've paid your, your uh, fine or done your uh, time, you're issued a special license plate that's fluorescent, and people know that you've had that. And apparently the recidivism rate is very, very low after that. So it's just a recommendation. What do you think about that? Uh, I've not heard of it, but uh, I'm obviously in favor. Um, I know from the public shaming, that's what they call it, uh, whether it was posting people uh, arrested for, uh, you know, sex trade uh, transactions, we'll call them, or other drunk driving is another big one. Um, if it works and it's effective, um, that's fine. Uh, that kind of stigma that goes with it, I'm not as big a fan on that where, you know, uh, but it's impaired driving. So uh, I wouldn't be adverse. It would require changes from the legislators, obviously. And, uh, and uh, interesting uh, concept. And apparently, you know, the police would st- stop them frequently. And any other drivers that see that license plate, you know, they would be, uh, that would be cautious. Anyways, it's just a recommendation. Okay. All right. Thanks very much, Tony. In the remaining moments, uh, we may be able to squeeze one more call in before we take the break at the top of the hour. Uh, in the remaining moments, I know that you were busy um, out in the community. Uh, there was a couple of events that, that you uh, talked with uh, several people and yeah. kind of uh, tell us about that. Quickly. Well, and it's interesting, too, because I, I was out at uh, uh, the Abraham Mosque on King Street. Uh, they raised the flag for the 150th celebration of Canada. Uh, so it was an assertion. And, and certainly uh, with the preponderance of newcomers there, 
Um, and, um, you know, the dialogue around what Canada represents in terms of, uh, you know, a peaceful society uh, where people feel included, uh, these are huge positives. And I was also with the Bangladesh community um, uh, for a harbor tour on Sunday night. But it's interesting, the dialogue, because it's usually I get approached on traffic issues mm-hmm. and people driving in the manner you've, you've stated. But also uh, what we're hearing a lot, too, is a difference in policing in Canada versus the international context or uh, countries of origin, how uh, how different it is. And, uh, you know, the accountabilities that we have were in some uh, societies where they're an arm of the military uh, and the abuses that may flow from that. It's very different. So it was very positive in terms of newcomers' perspective, both on Canada and on policing. All right, let's take our last call. Sarah, you've got uh, about a minute. Go ahead with Police Chief uh, Eric Go ahead. Good morning. How are you this morning? Good. Go ahead. Um, just really quickly, I actually work in the same building as CHML, and I have to take the 403 um, eastbound going home, so I always turn at Longwood and King Street West, and that intersection is a disaster. Um, I'm constantly seeing people run red lights. Pedestrians are almost getting hit. I know people are trying to run the green to turn left uh, with the left uh, turn signal, and it just seems like it's really short, and everyone is just trying to fly through that intersection all the time. Yeah, and oh. some some of those are engineering applications because we've looked at uh, also when we get our high um, high collision intersections, we look at those applications where the city traffic might be able to amend. Sometimes you have to actually change the topography of the road, which is not cheap or simple. Yep. And I know for Longwood and Maine, the the visible lines and lines of sight are difficult there, both for pedestrians crossing, as you said, but you have also multiple lanes turning at the same time. And anytime we've got intersections like that, it's difficult. Uh, so, yes, you can do enforcement, but I know from doing, uh, I talked about King and Dundurn. When I was in traffic, we did uh, enforcement there. You really got to watch that you don't get killed or set up a difficult situation by doing the enforcement. So it's very similar. Hamilton Police Chief Eric Gerb, the, the time has flown by. Thank you for this. Thanks, Ted. I, I appreciate that. This has been fun and very informative. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on AM 900 CHML.